This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. The United Nations is sounding another warning on climate change, declaring the window of opportunity to keep global warming below devastating levels is closing fast. The UN's emissions gap report says richer countries are not doing enough or even promising enough in order to cut emissions caused by burning fossil fuels. It says the world's on track to be almost three degrees warmer by the end of the century, which would mean catastrophic climate breakdown. People have already heated the planet by at least 1.1 degrees Celsius since pre-industrial times, and the consequences are being felt. Greenhouse gas emissions must be cut by 45% this decade. Under current policies, the world is headed for 2.8 degrees of global heating by the end of the century. In other words, we are headed for a global catastrophe. The world is heading towards climate catastrophe. Who says so? Some fringe bloggers? No, it's the United Nations. On October 26th, the World Meteorological Organization, or the WMO, held a press conference in New York. They confirmed what Radio EcoShock guests have been saying for more than a decade. Despite all the climate conferences, the green talk, the breathless announcements of new technology, all three of the worst greenhouse gases increased even more this year. We are heading towards catastrophic warming of about 3 degrees C within this century. All the heat waves, the fires, and the massive floods this past summer confirmed it. It showed us. But for over a decade, climate scientist Paul Beckwith has warned us about this with his hundreds of YouTube videos explaining the science behind it. Now Paul's research field has moved from the fringe to center stage. He told you so, including in his many appearances on Radio EcoShock. We are going to thrash through breaking climate science and Paul's plan to take to the upcoming climate conference in Egypt this month. From Ottawa, Canada, Paul Beckwith, welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Hello, Alex. It's always a pleasure to uh, chat with you on your program. Okay, so before we dig into the new papers putting facts to our worst fears about climate, how does it feel to come back from your summer break to find authorities finally willing to admit fossil fuels are addictive and we're failing to slow climate change at all? Well, on the one hand, it's nice to have lots of company, um, you know, instead of being sort of the bearer of just alarming news on the climate front, you know, there's lots of voices now that are to have, uh, have company, but then on the other hand, it's it's not nice to be correct about how bad it was going to become. And it's always a surprise, even to me, how quickly the climate catastrophe is deteriorating. It is. You know, I've been following this for years and, and uh, thinking, well, maybe I'm just an alarmist. But then things come up like 50 degrees summer in Canada and then uh, the fabulous fires. A, a third of Pakistan goes underwater. And I think, well, even I wasn't really up onto it enough. That report, by the way, for listeners, was released on October 26th from the UN Environment Program. It's called Emissions Gap Report 2022, The Closing Window, and I'll put a link to that on my blog, of course. And they say greenhouse gases are just increasing. NBC News gave it less than two minutes of their coverage and then spent 10 minutes on the last mass murder, the elections in Georgia, and general fluff. So... Let's get down to it, Paul. How do you picture a world almost three degrees C hotter on average? 
it's really tough to kind of imagine because we're only now we're only you know 1.1 1.2 degrees Celsius. You know that's above the turn of the century baseline because we always have to keep in mind the uh, the baseline that's used. So you know most people now use the average temperature between say 1880 and 1910, and that's become the assumed pre-industrial. They call it pre-industrial assumed baseline. You know, without ever mentioning that's what it is. And of course, you know, in the original climate reports and IPCC reports, the original temperature of the 1.5 safe temperature or two degrees temperature was first, and then 1.5. You know, those, those are were originally based on the 1750 temperatures. So you need to add 0.2 or 0.3 degrees Celsius to those. And also, there's certain months of the year um, when we have actually exceeded that 1.5 Celsius, um, if you use those original baselines, or if you use the 1880 to 1910, we've reached, we've had month, entire months over about 1.3 already, and uh, at least I'm starting to hear of some UN reports and others saying that, yeah, 1.5 is, forget about 1.5, that's going to be next to impossible. I mean, you just have to do the math, how much we're rising each year, each decade, or and, you know, where we're at now. But, I mean, the, in terms of, of the catastrophes and extreme weather, mostly caused by extreme weather events, I mean, those are just getting out of control in many places, you know, all around the world. I mean, it's pretty clear that... Uh, we're in a world of consequences now to the temperatures we've already reached, let alone, I mean, three degrees is kind of, you know, I mean, we're talking about collapse, you know, well before then, collapse of the global food supply and then huge geopolitical conflict and things going on. I mean, there seems to be no end to the bad news on, on abrupt climate system change uh, science. Well, right. I think the blockbuster new paper for me is titled Climate Endgame, Exploring Catastrophic Climate Change Scenarios. I spoke with the lead author, Luke Kemp, in last week's Radio EcoShock show, and I urge listeners to go back and grab that if you missed it. You did one of your longest videos yet on this paper. What talks to you about it? Well, I mean, the main thing is, of course, is that now this is a peer-reviewed paper. Right, because it doesn't sound much different from what you and I have been discussing on your program for for years, and uh, you know what a handful of other people have been talking about for years. But to see it sort of as a peer-reviewed paper as a new area of uh, study, I mean, they're talking about we need a lot more research on this. We can't just you know that this is happening to us you know, on our planet right now. So it's about time that the uh, scientific reticence was put aside and uh, the reality was examined from a scientific point of view in papers. So so this is just sort of beginning, I think. I think a lot more, there'll be a lot more similar papers. I mean, how can there not be? Some of the videos and work I've been doing recently is on the um, ocean warming you know, how the intermediate uh, depth ocean warming is undercutting all of the uh, glaciers, not just in Greenland, but also in Antarctica, not just in West Antarctica, but also in East Antarctica. Scientific studies, and most people think that uh, East Antarctica's ice is rock solid. It's not going anywhere, anywhere, anywhere. Uh, but it turns out that there's large fingers of the ocean that penetrate under the ice shelves, and they're 
greatly increasing melt rates even in the last you know decade or two of, of glaciers that if they do go will raise global sea levels uh, several meters. That seems coming for sure, and I want to talk about that in detail. But before we get there, I also want to ask you about your plans to present this Climate Endgame paper and more at the COP27 Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, this month. Yes, the conference, it runs from November 6th. It runs for two weeks, and uh, I'll get there just like the day before it starts. And I'm doing lots of press conferences with a group called the Climate Emergency Forum and also probably several with another group called Facing Future. We have sessions. The the, the UN keeps changing the number of sessions that we have. So originally we applied for and were accepted to give a press conference every single day. But that was cut in half about a week ago. So now we have... uh, you know, a session every other day in the actual press conference room, but we're, we'll probably be doing presentations and putting together videos on, you know, every day as we originally anticipated. So, you know, things that I'll be emphasizing, of course, are, you know, the climate endgame paper, of course, and the recent um, peer-reviewed papers talking about how bad the situation is. I'll There'll be a lot of emphasis on the Arctic and on the warming oceans and also on the droughts that we've been seeing around the world, uh, leading to uh, rivers completely drying up. I mean, this is happening in many, many places. And the extreme weather events uh, increasing in frequency, severity, and duration and happening in regions where they didn't happen before the increase in tropical storms turning into large category uh, hurricanes and talk about you can throw away the sort of the idea of a one in a hundred or one in a thousand year event because that the climate system has changed. So um, those numbers are pretty meaningless. And, uh, you know, we have to make hard choices as a society, like, why rebuild the whole Fort Myers region in Florida, for example, just to have it destroyed with another storm in a few years? And, of course, you know, Canada experienced Fiona, and I know I have several friends who live in Prince Edward Island who lost their cottages on the North Shore. They were, they were actually moved by the wind off their foundations, and they've been written off by insurance companies. Climate change is accelerating, and the consequences are more and more severe, and it's happening to more and more people um, around the world. So I'll try to talk about the uh, science, but also bring in, you know, the human element. And, you know, we have to keep in the back of our mind how we grow our food and, and how we distribute our food, because we're really heading rapidly to global food crisis with lots of starvation. You have at least 500 climate teaching videos on your site, paulbeckwith.net, and your YouTube channel, of course. And let's talk about a couple of recent videos. Over a decade ago, you started out warning about a possible methane spike in the Arctic with the superwarming gas coming up from the seabed. Well, since then, of course, we've seen a lot more science about that. So that hasn't happened yet, but suddenly everyone wants to talk about methane again. Tell us about the surprising discovery of warming waters below the surface of the North Atlantic Ocean that you covered recently. 
Yes, there's huge uh, consequences that result from a greatly warming ocean. And we know that climate change is really, it's a huge ocean warming problem. I mean, you know, over 90% of the uh, heat, excess heat that's being captured by the Earth system is going into the oceans, warming the oceans. And the intermediate waters, uh, intermediate depth waters, that warming is enormous because it not only does it melt the ice, ice shells and it goes far inland into Greenland in these channels, also in Antarctica, and it melts the ice from below. And in Greenland, there's a lot of interactions between the meltwater on the surface, which then drains down through the ice to the bedrock, where the ice is resting on the bedrock, and it causes these uh, plumes of meltwater because it's fresh, so it's buoyant, it's light, and that water comes out at the edge of the ice shelf where the ice is grounded on the bedrock, and then it rises up because the seawater around is very salty, Although it's colder, the seawater, it's, it's heavy, heavier. So this meltwater comes up and causes these plumes, which then cause turbulent flow next to the ice and, and greatly increases the melt rates. So this is happening in Greenland. In Antarctica, you know, it's still colder ab- above the surface, so you don't get a lot of surface melt unless you're in the, say, Antarctica peninsula that extends to higher, the highest latitudes for the whole continent of Antarctica. You know, even on East Antarctica, we're getting warm seawater penetrating underneath the ice, causing melt. And they've done some interesting studies using instrumentation on seals and on, you know, on some marine creatures that you can't direct where they go, of course, but they naturally swim all over in the water. And if you're measuring temperature and salinity of the water and you have the location of them, then you can get lots of data. But they, they're using these floats which um, sit at the bottom and they rise up to the surface under the ice every five days or so and then descend back to the, to the ocean floor measuring temperature and salinity. So with these, all of these sort of things show a great warming of this water, the intermediate water which melts the ice on the coast of uh, Antarctica as well as Greenland. And then also the warming water is actually warm enough to thaw out the marine sediments and within the me- embedded within the marine sediments there's methane clathrate, if you like. It's like the methane molecule, CH4, the gas molecule, surrounded by frozen water um, in sort of like a lattice and that keeps the methane trapped in the sediments, but that, that water lattice is thawing away, it's melting away, releasing the methane, and there's a lot of evidence from the paleo records that uh, there's been huge outbursts of these methane clathrates with water temperatures similar to what we're seeing today. So it was referred to originally by the original papers, Kenneth's papers, uh, as the, the methane gun, if you like, the methane clathrate gun. So there is a, a risk, and we know that the methane levels are greatly increasing in the atmosphere through a number of different reasons. You know, as you mentioned at the beginning, all of the greenhouse gases are on are hitting levels that they haven't been at before in uh, you know modern times, and uh, they're just causing tremendous warming um, around the planet. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest, 
climate scientist, Canadian climate scientist, Paul Beckwith. You have a presence on Facebook as well. You recently posted study, Arctic sea ice loss leads to more frequent strong El Nino events. Now, this is an interesting debate here because in September, I interviewed the longtime scientist Dennis Hartman, and he found that climate-driven changes in Antarctica could bring more years like the last three, dominated by La Nina. And that makes sense because we call it ENSO. Uh, the La Nina-El Nino system is called ENSO, and that includes the southern oscillation. It's part of the, the southern hemisphere. But I suppose there isn't a conflict here because La Nina years may become more common, but when El Nino develops, watch out. Uh, what do you think, Paul? Yes, my next few videos, I, I've been focusing on the intermediate uh, water warming, the relationship to the AMOC, the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, um, the undercutting of the glacier in Greenland in, in the Paleo Records, which caused these ice rafted debris surges known as, as Heinrich uh, event, and also the effect of the methane class rates, and that was in on the continental shelf off Africa near the equator. And in my next two videos, I'll be talking about uh, East Antarctica. The, I, I talked about the huge glacier melt for the Thwaites Glacier in uh, western Antarctica, and that was a fascinating study where they used the underwater autonomous vehicle plus data from um, sensors on seals. But the Denman Glacier in East Antarctica is an enormous glacier. It's near the Totten Glacier. Yeah, I haven't done that video yet. This is where they've also measured warm water infiltrating under the glacier by various means and show that this is an unstable glacier because it's a retrograde slope. So, so the water depth increases significantly as you go inland. In fact, it reaches up to 3,500 uh, meters deep, you know, very, very deep. So if the warm water gets in there then the grounding line retreats, and it's retreated, I think, five kilometers or something in the last uh, decade or two already. So it's, it's rapidly retreating the grounding line, and that's where the, the, the glacier sits on the bedrock. That's the outermost part closest to the ocean where the glacier actually sits on the bedrock. So as that retreats, depending on the topography of the seafloor, the glacier can really accelerate, and you can get enormous melt. With you, if you have these retrograde slopes, which is the case for this Denman Glacier. But also, the loss of the sea ice, you know, has huge effects on glacier melt, um, on ice shelf melt, because the, the ice axe is kind of like a quirk in the bottle, if you like. But also, uh, huge loss of sea ice is changing the distribution of heat, the amount of heat that is moving up from the equator to the far north in the Arctic, and so if, when that heat slows down and less of it goes far north, then there's more accumulating closer to the equator. And uh, there's a new paper that just came out uh, that you're referring to about a, from about a, you know just a few days ago I saw it. Um, and it talks about as we lose more and more sea ice, there's these teleconnections, which, and we can expect more powerful El Ninos to occur uh, as we get go to a world with less and less sea ice. So, you know, this is a very hot area, if you like, pardon the pun, of research because, you know, we've had three years right now of La Niña's and everybody 
you know, that will end at some point. And then when we next have the El Nino or the, the period, the time where a lot of heat comes out of the ocean, then we'll probably just totally destroy all temperature records. You know, it will be the hottest year ever by a very, very large margin. If you look at the past El Ninos, they, they seem to be getting stronger and stronger. Yeah, we've been shocked by recent weather, and that's during the weaker system, the La Nina, so we ain't seen nothing yet. Paul Beckwith, you've specialized in tracking Arctic sea ice and conditions in the Arctic. What is the status of the sea ice, and have we gone so far into warming that that doesn't matter as much anymore? Well, the Arctic sea ice, it seems to be hanging on <laughs> longer than, than I would have expected, and I think the reason is that there are some negative feedbacks, some breaking feedbacks that are actually slowing down the melt. And what, what the primary one is, that is, you know, after a very intense melt year, uh, close to record melt year, loss of Arctic sea ice, then in the fall, when the Arctic turns colder, the ice growth is, is enormous. And if you look at the um, physics of ice growth, as the ice, so the growth is always fastest uh, when it's initially forming, and uh, then actually as the ice thickens up, it gets the growth gets slower and slower because the ice is a very good insulator. So if, if the you know the ice is forming because of the cold atmosphere above, the ice gets thicker. There's less heat exchange through the ice, so there's less heat that will be lost from the water through the ice, and of course the ice is forming um, onto the, from below, it's, it's, it's building up on the bottom of the ice. So that's one effect, and, you know, there seems to be some other effects in play. The best peer-reviewed science is still talking about no ice, no ice-free, you know, with a decade or two. I mean, that number, there's a lot of papers coming out that are studying that, and I mean, the bottom line is we just don't know for sure that it's coming. I mean, the trends are all to no sea ice. And I think after we have no sea ice in the summers uh, in, in the Arctic, um, it won't be that long before, you know, we have less and less ice year-round. Eventually go to no ice year-round. Cool. More vacation properties for everybody. Well, yeah, not so good. So the world leaders from the UN are finally ready to admit we're failing to control emissions and disaster seems our most likely course. And the next step is surely an attempt at geoengineering to cool the planet. And our guest Luke Kemp last week also wrote a paper studying the injecting of aerosols into the atmosphere, and he concludes it's still too risky, partly due to the human factors. I mean, just look at the United States. You, you had uh, some progress during the Obama years, or at least better talk about the climate, and then, of course, Trump just threw it all out the window, and now it's sort of back with Joe Biden, but not really. Humans can't hold a steady course, and yet that's exactly what's needed once you start cooling the planet with stuff in the atmosphere. What are your current thoughts on this, Paul? Well, it looks like that the effect of aerosols on the climate, I mean, there, there's two effects. There's the direct effect, where the aerosols can actually, actually block sunlight and cause some cooling on the surface, depending on their, their altitude. But there's also the indirect effect where the aerosols act as cloud condensation nuclei and cause clouds to, you know, when there's water enough water vapor in the atmosphere, then there can be condensation onto the droplets and cloud formation. Then the aerosol size is, is very important because the smaller the cloud condensation nuclei, then the 
smaller the cloud droplets will be and the, the more highly reflective they are and the more cooling they would call, they'll cause on the surface. So there are programs that have reduced aerosols in the last number of years, like from ships, for example. Also, COVID reduced emissions significantly from less industrial production. But of course, that's, you know, in, industries roared back after that. So there's all of these factors going on, but it does appear that the so-called global dimming effect is actually larger than scientists expected. The most recent few peer-reviewed papers on, on it show that the effect might be larger. It might be closer to, say, a degree Celsius rather than half a degree Celsius. What this means is it, it means that the effects of aerosols being generated as part of geoengineering programs will actually have a, have a larger impact on the climate than, than we probably expect at the moment. It'll be easier to cool the planet with aerosols in the atmosphere than we expected from the science. But then, of course, there's the argument. The, the argument is that you have to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. Well, the idea is that we have to slash fossil fuel emissions and usage and something like aerosols generation in the atmosphere to cool the planet to balance time to slash the emissions. Is uh, I still think that's the way we're going to have to go. I mean, governance is going to be a big issue, as you say. Um, and then there's also the idea that you know, we would just need, if, if you or I could convince uh, Elon Musk that we needed to do this, you know, it could be done very, very quickly, right? It wouldn't, it wouldn't require a government to, to do. Of course, that's one of the scary parts, too. We, we might have uh, the Korean dictator decide to do it, or, or just some independent actor, a billionaire, will cool the planet, and uh, I don't know. I think that's going to be an ongoing debate I just saw a new climate podcast has come out, and it has Chevron for a sponsor. You know, the oil company that really cares about wrecking the future with its products. Has Chevron offered to sponsor your mission to teach the world climate science on YouTube or your trip to the Egypt Climate Conference, Paul? <laughs> no, and, and same with Coca-Cola. They haven't either. Although they are sponsoring part of the uh, climate conference. They're giving money like it's just, it's very funny funny world that we're in like it's it seems to get more and more uh, chaotic and ridiculous time goes on perhaps we live in a clown universe you know what i'm saying it's it's actually a, a funny chaos yes it is and i don't know if you've heard but at least over over cbc and uh you know other broadcasts lately i keep hearing these ads on the radio for carbon capture is important, and you know the big, the big five or six operations in in the uh, Alberta tar sands, the oil sands, um, are all working hard to uh, have carbon capture to make their work, uh, you know, low emissions. <laughs> so there's a lot of greenwashing going on all over. Yeah, it's it's like uh, sort of heroin addicts saying, "Well, we're going to keep doing heroin, but we're going to sweep up the streets and make sure there's no needles around." You know, it, it doesn't solve the problem at all. I am seeing more climate scientists going the route of public education, as you chose to do. We have Kevin Trenberth with his public-friendly climate book out now, and Box offers his video series called "Faster Than Forecast." Michael Mann is is doing public-facing books as well. 
But they can't do it all, the detailed science and the public speaking. We seem to need a new role, some kind of large-scale medium. I don't know, maybe a 24-7 uh, climate TV channel or, or, hey, here's a radical idea. Let's teach this to our kids in every grade in school. How do you think we could reach the world in time? Yeah, you know, the public is used to um, daily or even hourly weather forecasts, right? You know, you get the news and you get a couple minutes of weather. Right, I, I think we need to have a climate a climate part. Like to get the news, a couple minutes of climate for all programming, you know, all mainstream programming, just to keep uh, getting that message out to people. Yeah, I've often thought that that that's what's needed. Different stations, as you say, uh, different climate scientists are having their own programs and books, more to get information to the public large uh, news stations are having their own climate departments and so on. So we're seeing all these changes. It just seems to, it seems like the changes in the actual climate system are far faster than any of these changes on the human scale. But I've talked about um, the idea of reaching a, a, a tipping point in human understanding and in human behavior and human action on the climate problem. And you know, maybe we're getting, we're always getting closer to that point, but where is it? Uh, some people talk about 5% take up being sufficient to start then tipping over to, you know, exponential increase. But it, it just seems to be taking a long time, that's all. <laughs> With an exponential change, it does seem, things take, seem to take a long time and then suddenly, whoosh, you know, you're in a different situation. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest climate scientist, Paul Beckwith. Well, we can hope for that. I, I know that some of my listeners have given up hope. They're, they're stocking up on beans in the basement, hoping to stay alive somehow while the heat and the, and the social breakdown unfold. Others are going on travel holidays, a, a big flight, figuring this might be their last chance. Will you report back to our listeners from Sharm el-Sheikh if we can set up a decent connection? Yes, that sounds like a, like a great idea. I'd be very happy to do that. From Ottawa, Canada, we've been speaking with climate scientist Paul Beckwith. You can find him at paulbeckwith.net. I recommend you go there. You can also track all the science and videos we talked about today in my own show blog at ecoshock.org. Paul, thank you for helping us out again, and I hope to talk to you in a few weeks from Egypt. Sounds good. Thank you very much. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. Scorching heat in the U.S. South underlines the absolute dependence on air conditioning and the grid that powers all those machines. Now AC is moving much farther north to Portland and Seattle, never mind the oven that was Spain, Portugal, and even Paris in 2022. Stan Cox wrote about all this in his 2010 book, Losing Our Cool, Uncomfortable Truths About Our Air-Conditioned World. We talked about it on Radio EcoShock. But there is another Stan Cox. Beyond his six books, by day Stan was for years lead breeder for the Land Institute Sorghum Program. His work partnered with seven countries, from India through Africa to America. We will find out why this food staple matters even more in a warming world. 
But now Stan has joined the Ecosphere Studies team at the Land Institute. He is tracking the global ecologic emergency. From Salina, Kansas, Stan Cox, welcome back to Radio Ecoshock. Yeah, good to be back with you, Alex. Twelve years after you and I rang the bell on air conditioning, machine cooling is spreading farther around a warming world. Does it still cause you to worry about it? Yes, it certainly does, because around 2012, a couple of years after we talked, finally you started seeing a lot of concern in the U.S. about air conditioning and the fact that both through refrigerants and through uh, energy consumption, that it is responsible for putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and ensuring that future summers will be even hotter. But around that time, the prompt for um, this increased concern was not what I had been bringing up, that we you know, way overuse air conditioning in this country. It's, it was uh, that a lot of other countries with, that have a lot of uh, high temperature areas are now taking up air conditioning and, uh, and and they have a lot of people you know India China and that's going to ruin the atmosphere cause runaway global warming and so forth so the kind of thing that we nobody wanted to think about when it was just us doing it then there was a lot of alarm but of course there you know, nothing is uh, being done about either I suppose heat pumps are a slight advance over the old air conditioning technology. Well, uh, they're an advance uh, for heating. They, they are an advance over burning fuel oil or natural gas or using electricity from a power plant for heating elements and that kind of thing. But a heat pump is just a reverse air conditioner, and so the, I guess there, there's the uh, indirect savings of emissions from from heating, but it will still be using the same amount of energy and causing emissions for uh, running it as uh, air conditioning. All right, well, let's switch over here. Now, you spent over a decade working on a crop that is just not well known by listeners in the Northern Hemisphere. I wasn't really familiar with it. What is sorghum and why does it matter? Sorghum is the, I think it's still the, in volume produced and used, is the fifth most important uh, food grain on earth. It originated about 8,000 years ago in the area of uh, East Africa that uh, is today is South Sudan, somewhere around there. And it's a plant that looks, right before it produces seed, it looks very similar to a, a corn plant. It's in the same part of the grass family, but it produces its grain at the top of the plant where corn has a tassel, so it doesn't have an ear, but it, but it has a, a head full of grain at the top. It spread around from Africa in, into Asia through tropical areas throughout uh, ancient times, and it was only in the mid-20th century that American farmers started growing grain sorghum. There was also forage sorghum, which the stalks and leaves are uh, fed to cattle. But unlike the sorghum in in Africa or South Asia, which is uh, almost 100% eaten as human food, kind of like uh, it makes a product kind of like cornmeal, in the United States, the, almost all of it goes either toward 
feeding livestock or in producing fuel ethanol for uh, to run cars and trucks and it's primarily i'm here in kansas and in, in the center of the country in the bulk of the grain sorghum in the U.S. is grown in a kind of a strip up the middle of the country from Texas through Oklahoma, uh, Kansas, and and a little bit into uh, Nebraska. So there are different types of sorghum, some grown like a cereal for humans, as you say, and some grown in fields as fodder for animals. I was surprised to learn that excess heat and drought, and we've seen lots of that, can turn sorghum fodder somewhat toxic. Can you talk to us about that? Yes, and that's generally in the younger part of the sorghum's life. So it sprouts in the spring and and comes up and may look like a field of corn seedlings uh, coming up. And that young, fast-growing vegetation, if there is a a drought or conversely a a freeze or some kind of stress, it can cause the plant to produce something called prussic acid, which is a compound that, you know, if the cattle eat it, that prussic acid will produce um, hydrogen cyanide, the notorious poison, and, and kill them. And so breeders in, in the uh, United States have worked on developing sorghums that don't respond to stress that way and don't produce um, prussic acid. But in general, they uh, generally avoid having cattle graze on sorghum ju- just to be sure they will then you know, later cut it for uh, silage or uh, after the crop is harvested, they can, cattle can go out and eat the dry stalks. But the sorghum that uh, I've been working on here at Land Institute for a couple of decades is something that is not in commercial production yet. It's still in the experimental stage, a perennial sorghum, which instead of being planted every spring, being harvested in the fall, and uh, the plants dying off, then you have to do tillage or herbicides or something and then disturb the soil again in the spring and and sow again. Instead of that, perennial sorghum will survive through the winter as uh, underground stems so you don't see any any life there at all. But then if those those stems um, survive and put up uh, shoots in in the spring so you get a, a, a second crop third crop, et cetera, each season without having to replant. And how's that going? Do we have that? Well, as I said, we're we're still in the um, breeding stage, but we've made a lot of advances so that now we're getting close to having varieties, not, not varieties, but breeding lines that are perennial and do produce decent grain, but we're at this point, they are going to be mainly targeted toward the uh, tropics and, and subtropics and most particularly toward parts of African continent because the underground stems they produce are not quite winter-hardy enough to survive a Kansas winter. Uh, that's one of the reasons we're targeting tropics. And, and the other reason is that we're aiming it to be specifically a food grain because um, we wouldn't go to all this work just to have it 
used in factory farming of uh, animals or fueling uh, SUVs. So we're working with colleagues in uh, Uganda and, and other countries who will be taking what uh, the perennial sorghum we've developed, uh, making crosses, hybridization with their locally adapted annual sorghum and selecting perennial sorghum there. Well, taking a realistic view, some experts on climate change suggest humans will have to adapt what we eat. We may have to switch our diets to more heat-resistant crops, and sorghum is often mentioned. Could sorghum help feed a warming planet? Yeah, that's right. I mean, already in places like the high plains here in western Kansas, down through the Texas panhandle, sorghum, because of its uh, heat and drought tolerance, has displaced uh, a lot of corn that be grown there otherwise. And that's the reason in these semi-arid parts of the African continent also are traditionally sorghum growing. And they, uh, they're places where maybe people prefer corn, but it's too unreliable because of heat and drought, and sorghum is, is much more uh, reliable grain producer. Well, yes, let's talk about Kansas for a minute. The state government says agriculture is the largest economic driver in the state. It's worth at least $76 billion annually, and that's bigger than the gross domestic product of about 130 countries by my count. So, Stan, I heard that the so-called dry line is advancing towards Kansas, and what is the predicted climate future for this critical food-producing state? Yeah, you're right. The dry line is a line running north-south, west of which the amount of rainfall and precipitation that an area gets on average is less than the amount of moisture that is pulled out of the ground by plants or evaporates from the surface of the soil. So there's a a built-in deficit of uh, moisture for growing plants or for doing a lot of things that agriculture is dependent on pumping groundwater out of the ground or from reservoirs and and so forth. And that line is right around the 100th meridian, which is a couple of hours west of uh, where I'm sitting here in in western Kansas. And... uh, I've seen some predictions that by by the end of this uh, century, the dry line could have might have moved almost to uh, Kansas City, uh, on more than a couple of hundred miles uh, to the east. And certainly, where I am in, in Salina would be in that place where there is uh, n- not enough water to grow crops without irrigation, and we probably aren't wouldn't have much. Uh, water available for irrigation by that time anyway. Are experts at the Land Institute seeing the impacts of global warming already, and and what do you hear from farmers? Yes, there's. I'll I'll give one example, which has been a big pain for us. We grew for the first, I don't know, 15-plus years of the sorghum program here. We were pretty much pest-free and insect mites, etc., were were not a problem. It would just be very sporadic. Then starting in about 2015, we suddenly had an outbreak of the yellow sugarcane aphid, this little sucking insect that 
it, it was a tropical pest, and it, in, in the Caribbean, uh, in sugarcane growing areas, it would attack sugarcane. It would sometimes get into the very lower South Texas area where they uh, grow sorghum. But with the you know winters getting warmer and warmer, suddenly every, every year since the sugarcane aphid has made it up as far as Kansas, and it can really um, decimate a crop. And there's another insect that a couple of years later, it, it's even worse that we suddenly started having problems with that had been strictly a tropical, subtropical insect, which is the sorghum midge, this teeny tiny fly that lays its eggs where the each seed is supposed to be developing. And so the plant basically produces no seed. And that's another one that we wouldn't be having if we had the kind of winters that, that we had in past decades. I work with plants almost every day, either you know, out in the garden or in the greenhouse, and they inspire and amaze me, even the weeds, maybe especially the weeds. Uh, Stan, do you sometimes translate your plant knowledge into understanding the human crisis? One thing that we, that we say around here is because we really believe that perennial crops are going to be necessary. Um, we, we kind of jokingly say that our ancestors 10,000 years ago made a big mistake uh, domesticating only uh, annual crops because at the time they were harvesting seed, you know, in hunter-gatherers, they were picking seed from both perennial and uh, annual species, but for various technical reasons, they domesticated only the, uh, the annual species so that now, um, over you know, billions of acres around the world that had always been under uh, natural ecosystems in which almost uh, 100% of the plants are typically perennial, they replaced those, and we, and we continue to replace them with much more uh, fragile annual monoculture um, ecosystems. And we're probably not going to solve the problems of agriculture uh, until we you know, get back to uh, perennial systems. Well, you are kind of a two-track guy. You, you work in detail on plants, but you also write big-picture books, uh, at least six of them by my count. And I wonder, like, humans have this turbulent history. We can look back on our wars and our diseases and, and depressions. But are we in a different kind of crisis now, do you think? What makes this challenge different? Yes, we're in a, the most serious uh, crisis that humanity has, has faced because it, it, now it's, it's universal. It's not one region or another. And the world is going to be very different within uh, just a couple of decades, not only because of climate change, but also because of uh, we have overshot, transgressed several of these so-called planetary boundaries. Uh, you know, we have this mass extinction event going on. We're, we're losing daily, losing a lot of the biodiversity of the planet. The world's nitrogen and phosphorus cycles uh, and the water cycles are completely haywire because we uh, because of industry and. Both the world that we see around us today and these problems 
exist because of the fossil fuel bonanza of the past hundred years. And if we had not had those ancient fuels dug or pumped from the ground, we would not see anything like today's world would be more like the world of the 1700s. There would be much less, fewer humans, a lot fewer humans, and a lot less stuff. But because of that, having that energy available and, and not restraining ourselves, today, believe it or not, the total human-made mass, that is everything that humanity has manufactured or built and is still and is still standing, still in existence, outweighs the total standing biomass of the Earth. So it, it seems incomprehensible to me, but it, everything uh, living on the Earth, weigh all of that up, it's dry matter, and it's less than what we've built and manufactured. And, and that trend is accelerated, and it, uh, it's reaching a limit. It can't go on much longer. In 2020, you published a book about ending the climate emergency while we still can. Noam Chomsky wrote the foreword. Do you think our current institutions can react quickly enough to save humanity from ourselves? <laughs> well, yeah, things are happening fast because I wrote that book during 2019 and around 2018 and run up to those midterm elections just four years ago. There was a lot of excitement. That's when people were talking about the Green New Deal. There, there seemed to be a lot of momentum behind it. Uh, Bernie Sanders' people got a World War II-style mobilization for climate into the Democratic Party platform, etc. And so I, I wrote the book in 2019 kind of saying, okay, how's it going with this and you know, what will a Green New Deal do for us? And, and probably more importantly, what is it still lacking that we're going to have to have? What, what's, uh, where are the holes in it? And the main hole was and still is, there's no direct surefire mechanism for uh, phasing out fossil fuels completely to take the quantities of oil, gas, and coal that are being extracted and burned take it down in, in very uh, rapid-fire fashion uh, year after year. But, and I um, and, and, uh, and other people are um, you know, pushing ways to do this. We, we are demonstrating just verbally how it, it could be done, and it, it would be a big political lift, but it, it, it seemed non-feasible. Um, then after the disappointments of the uh, past couple of years on uh, failure to get any really um, significant climate legislation passed by Congress, and and now looking at the possibility that we'll end up with by a couple of years from now far right control of all three branches of government. It's looking dimmer all the time that the United States is going to manage to reduce its. Uh, fossil fuel use or greenhouse gas emissions quickly enough to avoid uh, some really catastrophic warming. And, and obviously, if we're not doing it, then the, the world as a whole is not going to do it either. There's a lot of talk and excitement about things like a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty by which the whole 
about how all the countries of the world would work together on reducing their fossil fuel use and emissions and so forth. But um, the prospects are, are not looking good. If the United States completely fails on this, then it, it's not going to be good. Well, in another book, one of the solutions you considered in detail was rationing, and, and that may come yet for energy-challenged countries in Europe this winter. But I still see advertising pushing everyone to consume as much as possible, no limits, even though nature has limits. Could rationing actually be socially redeeming if we get that far? And, and, and rationing is in, involved in the kind of policies that uh, – my colleagues and I have been pushing for, but rationing, rather than being the means of reducing consumption, uh, rationing, it, its role is as an adaptation to short supply and, and high prices that, like, you, uh, as you were saying, uh, could be seeing rationing of uh, heating fuel in, in Europe this winter, that would be because there's um, externally uh, uh, imposition of a shortage of fuel, then the only way to have uh, uh, fairness and sufficiency so everybody gets enough but that uh, it isn't used to excess is uh, with rationing. And that's what we've been pushing for, but in this case, self-imposed restraint, where where we have a law that puts a cap on the amounts of oil, gas, and coal that can be extracted and burned and then ratchets that cap down uh, year by year. And uh, that would, because that would have to happen faster than we can build up renewable um, energy capacity, it would mean the national energy supply would be going down by some amount. And that would almost certainly trigger a need for price controls and rationing, just just as it did during uh, World War II. Your latest book is The Path to a Livable Future, A New Politics to Fight Climate Change, Racism, and the Next Pandemic. We are starting to run out of time, but could you briefly explain, are those three really connected, and, and should they be? Yes, I um, wrote that one. The Green New Deal and Beyond came out, in the spring of 2020, just as the first wave of COVID was hitting. And then uh, a couple of months later, we had a uh, killing of George Floyd and the um, r- racial reckoning that we, we had during that summer. And my uh, editor at City Lights Books said, uh, I think you're going to need a sequel to the uh, Green New Deal book. Um, and so I, looking at it, the roots of all three of these problems, climate, systemic racism, and pandemics, are the roots are uh, intertangled both because of uh, they all, to one extent or another, are either triggered by the abuse of ecosystems or they have unequal, um, disparate consequences for you know, different parts of the uh, human species, di- uh, di- different uh, people, who uh, different groups of people, and 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 especially the um, uh, you know, dis- marginalized communities, indigenous peoples, etc. The people least responsible for causing the um, the problem, you know, the ecological problems 
uh, have to pay the higher price, and not only with uh, climate, but but also um, certainly with the uh, impacts of the um, pandemic on. Take, for example, migrant farm workers who, or, or the uh, people working in in meatpacking plants who were you know, categorized as essential workers. So it doesn't doesn't matter. You've got to work in, under those same conditions that foster the spread of the virus. And in the case of the farm workers, they weren't given masks except on days when federal inspectors were going to be coming. Anyway, in the book, I describe how all of those, the collision of all those problems came in in 2020 and and discuss what, is there a way to uh, avoid this in the future? Well, yes, I think we have some people who think we'll just work on climate change and fix that, and then we'll get around to racism and public health. And no, 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 it's one big complex, and they're all tied together, and we make it or we don't. From Salina, Kansas, and the Land Institute, we have been speaking with research fellow and author Stan Cox. You can find links to Stan and his works in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org, and please check out landinstitute.org. Stan, it was great to talk with you again. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. One of the world's leading climate scientists, Johan Rockstrom, has a dim view. According to The Guardian's environment reporter Damien Carrington, published October 27th, Rockstrom said, quote, It's a really bleak moment, not only because of the reports showing that emissions are still rising, so we are not delivering on either the Paris or Glasgow climate agreements, but we also have so much scientific evidence that we are very, very close to irreversible changes we are coming closer to tipping points, end quote from Johann Rockstrom. Please stay tuned to Radio EcoShock Weekly as we broadcast science-based truth about the greatest threat ever faced by humanity. No exaggeration, that's what it is, and it's a threat to our cohabitants, all the loving species here on planet Earth. Please stay tuned to Radio EcoShock Weekly as we broadcast science-based truth Thank you for seeking out the hard truth wherever it leads and still caring about our world.